0: Hi and welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's area rating for transit is on the table again. The city's plan for encampments remains a mystery. A new twist in the China foreign interference case. An apology and a new look for Pierre Poiliev. And Hamilton's former sanatorium has a dark past. Find out more in the GMH Podcast.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Hamilton's Transit Area Rating Review Subcommittee is going to meet Thursday to discuss the future of area rating for transit services in this city. So we're asking you should we stop area rating for transit? Yes, yes, but gradually or no? Head over to our Twitter feed at AM900CHML. 57% of you right now saying, Yes. Stop the madness. Time to pull the chute. Send me a text on this at 905-645-3221 on email, rick at 900chml.com. Well, let's talk about this issue with John Denko, Counselor Ward H with the City of Hamilton, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. JP, good morning. How are you?
2: Good morning, Rick. I'm well. Uh,
0: let's start with the, the, the foundational Um, uh, entity that is area rating. How does it work? Because there's a lot of confusion from residents on how exactly it does work.
2: Well, this is a a remnant from an amalgamation. So it's been in place for about 23 years now already. And it was originally put in place so that areas that don't have transit when they were amalgamated into the city, Hamilton, wouldn't pay for transit. Um, And at the time that might have made sense, you know, in 2000, 23 years ago, But today, our city has grown. We have uh, much more development in those amalgamated uh, suburbs, and they really need transit service there. And unfortunately, as a city, we can't increase the service or or provide the service as needed without having uh, equal payment for transit across the city. So that's the uh the crux of the issue that's been with us for you know since amalgamation so
0: where do you stand on this is it time to bring area rating for transit to an end
2: oh it's been time for a long time and i think it's really interesting that your poll right now is at 50 percent 57 percent in support and i think that's pretty uh similar to where council's been in the past where it's been on nearly 50 50 split between the old city hamilton and the rural areas and the amalgamated suburbs where the old city has been saying it's, it's time to get rid of area for transit and the rural areas are saying, well, we don't really get service. So we don't want to pay for it. But again, you know, our, our, our city has grown so much over that, that time and there's businesses and residents in those amalgamated areas that are, are actually now asking, saying, hey, we want transit. We need this service. Our business needs this service. Our communities need transit. And as a as a city, when we think about Hamilton as a whole, we're scheduled to grow by about 250,000 people uh, in the next uh, 10, 10, 15 years. And we cannot accommodate that many people, that, those many cars, without a significant modal shift to transit. And that's especially true in those amalgamated areas that don't have adequate service right now.
0: If area rating uh, for transit is eliminated, what impact would that have on the city's financial picture?
2: Well, it depends on where you are. So right now, the the urban areas, so Wards 1 to 8 and Ward 14, um, have been paying for transit all along. If we were to put transit on the general levy, just like roads are, right? Everybody from around the city pays the same amount for roads. It's not area rated. Um, there would be a small tax decrease for the old city of Hamilton and a tax increase. For the amalgamated suburbs, then we would have a baseline, right? Then we can say, okay, everybody's paying the same. Now, if we want to increase the service, then we can look at what we need to do in order to fund those increases for those areas, and everybody pays for it uh, equally.
0: We're talking about area rating for transit with John Paul Denko. He's the counselor for Ward 8 with the city of Hamilton. Hamilton's Transit Area Rating Review Subcommittee is going to meet Thursday to, I guess, continue to get the ball rolling in this regard. If the decision ultimately is okay, we're going to go about doing this. Is a gradual implementation the way it's going to happen?
2: I personally, I'd, I'd like to see us just, uh, you know, rip off the band-aid and do it all right now, um, because again, this is something that's been going on for so long. However, the committee will look at, look at phasing options. I think the one that's on the table right now is phasing for four years. But, you know, as I said off the top, this has been in place for 23 years. Uh, if you add another, you know, phasing another four years on top of that, that's 27 years. And really, I think we want to be able to improve the service to those areas now. And we can't do that while area rating for transit is in place.
0: You can look at this question in two ways, but with the cost of living where it is, with inflation being where it is and, and, and food prices going, you know, off the charts, is now the right time to do this?
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting how you answer that question, because transit is a very affordable option and it is an option for families that, uh, um, you know, don't have uh, you know, a vehicle or don't have multiple vehicles. And that's especially true if you're in uh, one of those amalgamated communities like Stony Creek or Dundas or Ancaster. Um, it can be really hard. Transit is not an option, therefore you have to have a vehicle or multiple vehicles. So I think transit is a money-saving option for many, many families across Hamilton. But of course, we're also very, you know, concerned about the the rate of taxation right now, and I think that's where you know council will have to try to find a balance.
0: The other way to look at this is the only way to improve transit and expand it in this city, which many people have been calling for for years, is to end area rating. We we need more money into this system.
2: That's exactly right. And we need a a baseline where everybody is paying equally. And then we, we can know for the entire system what we need to do in order to improve service. And then everybody funds those improvements equally. And in my mind, anyway, that's the only way forward.
0: Hamilton wasn't the only community to amalgamate way back when. Are other cities still using area rating?
2: I believe we're the last one that still has um, an outdated area rating system like this. Uh, there are still area rating systems in some other municipalities. Ottawa comes to mind. That that area rate between urban and rural. So true rural areas that don't receive transit will never receive transit um some communities do area rate that but again it's it's like roads we don't area rate roads roads are part of our transportation system just like transit is and everybody pays equally for roads so in my mind transit is is no different
0: makes sense to me as well john paul really thank you for uh, waking up uh, with us here this morning on good morning hamilton
2: Anytime, uh, happy
0: to be on. J.P. Denko is the counselor for Ward H with the City of Hamilton talking about uh, area rating for transit and how the Transit Area Rating Review Subcommittee is going to be Thursday to continue to get the ball rolling down this road.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The encampment issue, maybe the number one issue, maybe a close second in terms of cost of living, Uh, that is really digging into the minds of many in this community. And not just those who are in encampments. And I can't imagine day in and day out being in a a tent community, wondering what the day entails and what tomorrow holds. The city of Hamilton trying to figure out what to do. They've held three public meetings on this topic over the last number of weeks. They've conducted an online survey and Counselors next month are expected to finalize the city's protocol to deal with the growing number of encampments in our community. What should and what should not be included in this plan? Let's ask a local expert. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and joins us on GMH. Tom, good morning. How are you?
3: Hey, good morning, Rick. Happy Monday.
0: Um, your sense of the encampment issue in town, it, it, to you, is it getting worse
3: it's definitely getting worse, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned sort of the two top issues facing our community. Um, certainly, the encampment issue is a product, I think, of the increasing cost of living for many people. We're we're seeing runaway rents in Hamilton. Uh, rents are higher than they have ever been before. It, now costs almost $2,000 a month uh, to rent a one-bedroom apartment, according to Rentals.ca, over $2,000 for a two-bedroom apartment. So many people simply can't afford that extraordinarily high cost of of living, and uh, they're being forced out. And many people are finding themselves in situations of homelessness for the first time in their lives. And and so that's why we've seen such staggering numbers of, of people Out on the street trying to, trying to make, uh, what they can of, of a terrible situation and, and, Unfortunately, encampments are, are a result of public policy failures on, on multiple levels.
0: And to make matters worse, there's really nowhere else to go. I mean, there's the, the affordable housing situation is in dire straits. You just mentioned the rental capacity of this community. There's, there's not many places to go and the rental rates are too high. Um, emergency shelter spaces, that they don't exist. They're all taken up. And so it's no surprise that these individuals are finding themselves in a park, in a tent.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it It will require a, an, an entire community approach, I think, to, to deal with this crisis. But as, as you know, Rick, the, the long-term solution to this is, is building more affordable housing. Um, obviously, we want to ensure that those individuals who are living outside, uh, you know, have safety and security and, and, and are relatively healthy in in their situation. But the long-term solution is going to be ensuring that senior levels of government invest, invest massive amounts of money into building new supportive housing units. So we don't have this situation, you know, a few years from now. Now, you know, we, we've made some bad decisions, I think, as, as a society over the last couple of decades, not investing enough uh, to ensure people have a place to call home. But we can turn things around, I think. And there's some good local initiatives happening that will help, but they'll take time.
0: Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We had the premier in town not too long ago who said that these greenbelt lands are going to create affordable, attainable homes. I have serious doubts about that. How do you feel?
3: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think if the premier was concerned about affordable housing, he'd Step right back to the legislature and change uh, the landlord-tenant regulations that are forcing so many vulnerable tenants out of their homes. Um, we have a situation where uh, landlords are are investing in properties and and spiking up rents to whatever they think they can get. And you know, we used to have something called rent control in this province, and and now we don't. Uh, we have what's called vacancy control, but basically it means that. Uh, tenants when they're looking for a new apartment are are stuck because there's often not the availability uh, within their price range uh, of affordable units. and And so we're seeing seeing the result of those. So building new monster homes in in the green belt is not the answer to this. it It's really investing in those affordable supportive units where where people on the lowering end of the income spectrum can live.
0: So let's get back to Hamilton's. Encampment protocol. We're going to get our first glimpse of it, or a, our latest glimpse of it, next month. What mm-hmm. do you think should and shouldn't be in this plan? Let's start with the shoulds. What what are the must-haves?
3: Well, I, I think it's going to be important to have uh, sanction encampments that are, you know, in, ensuring that people can remain safe and and stable in their situation. One of the things we've been talking to the city about as well as is, is the idea around this uh, that you and I have talked about on number, uh, numerous occasions is the idea around having a small village of, of tiny cabins uh, set up for some of those individuals who are experiencing homelessness so that they can have a sense of community uh, and security um, you know, within within four walls, albeit four small walls, um, but it would provide that ability to stay safe, particularly during the winter. So I'm hoping that'll be part of the plan as well. Obviously, I attended um, I attended a couple of those community meetings, and there's a lot of there's a lot of concern about uh, you know people not wanting sanctioned encampments in, in their neighborhoods, and and certainly not having them close to schools or or other areas um, would be appropriate. But uh, I think we have to recognize that this crisis isn't going away, no matter how much we wish it away. And, and we have to ensure that those individuals, um, through a human rights lens, have, have some safety and security. So yeah, let's bring in sanctioned encampments and ensure there's the supports that are needed.
0: Regarding sanctioned encampments, some people, including councillors, are on the record as saying we can't have these because it's just going to lead to more and more homeless people being in these encampments, which brings us to how do we police them? How do we make sure these sanctioned encampments don't get too big?
3: Yeah, and I I think the city has brought in some important ideas around uh, the type of encampments that would be allowed under the protocol. Um, and. You know this is very much a polarizing issue but we have to recognize that the the homelessness crisis is with us right now and and this is just recognizing a reality uh, that people are facing um, often through no fault of their own and unless we're able to uh, provide those supports it's going to be impossible to resolve so you know if we can do it in a constructive way a collaborative way um, engaging, uh, Hamilton police services, those fantastic advocates who are, who are doing as much as they can, particularly the, the medical professionals to support individuals. I, I, I think we can make this work in, in a relatively, um, stable way, uh, that won't disrupt communities or neighborhoods too much.
0: I'm interested to see what city council and what city staff have come up with. Tom, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Rick. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The RCMP charging a retired Mountie in this case. It's under the Security of Information Act. 60-year-old William Modger, a former inspector with the Mounties, is facing two charges, committing preparatory acts on behalf of a foreign entity and conspiracy. Here to talk about it is Phil Gersky, the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, good morning. Thanks for waking up with us here on GMH. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Uh, this uh, file continues to deliver some wow moments. How big of a wow is this?
4: Well, you know, like you said, this is a file that, you know, we that worked in intelligence, we're, we've been looking at for more than 30 years and warning governments about what China's been doing. So... I think for the average Canadian, it's, well, this is neat new and now because, you know, an ex-RCMP is involved. But it's more indicative to me, Rick, of a campaign that the PRC has been involved with for a long time. Um, Yeah, I, I think that, you know, uh, looking at a former Mountie being involved is a bit of a, you know, a, a scary factor for many. But I I think for me, it, it's not nearly as important as people are making out to be. It's just one more piece in a very large puzzle that we have to figure out how to deal with, I think, here in Canada.
0: So is your sense that this is one of many shoes that will continue to drop here?
4: I think so. And, you know, we'll find out, you know, other people, maybe politicians, uh, all kinds of people from all walks of life, because what the Chinese do, Rick, and, and for your listeners' clarification, I wasn't a China expert at CISIS. I was a, ca- a counterterrorism guy. When I worked for people who worked on China, we used to call what they did the, the vacuum cleaner approach, which means they hoovered up every piece of information they could and then we will go through it later. So I think there's a lot more uh, indications and Canadians who have been, you know, I don't know, um, working for the Chinese or harassed or pressured, whatever kind of thing. And I think we're going to find out more and more things coming out, and perhaps you and I will have more conversations on this as a, co- as, a as a consequence. Uh,
0: apparently, this investigation into foreign interference, or at least you know some tidbits here and there regarding this big umbrella, stretches back decades, which. I guess in in some sense it's good to know that the intelligence community has been keeping tabs, but now at least we have some action.
4: really good point, Rick, is that what's lost in this is that, you know, we at CSIS and the RCMP, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been warning governments and intelligence assessments going back a long way. We've been ignored. Um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau rejected our findings initially, called us a bunch of racists for even suggesting China was doing this. So I think the onus is on the politicians to do something, but you're absolutely right. Here we have an arrest, we have charges, we'll have a court case. And that's what you want to have happen. You know, intelligence is a murky business, but at times you can use it when it gets to, to an evidentiary level to actually go to court in that cadence and see exactly what's going on. So I, I give kudos to the RCMP for the investigation. Yeah, it's one of their own, but still, they, they did their duty. And as a consequence, we have somebody now who has been charged and will go to trial.
0: William Otsker is the guy who uh, was arrested uh, in B.C. I guess he was visiting some family, and so Mounties pounced upon the opportunity. What do we know about this guy?
4: Not a heck of a lot. I mean, he did work for the RCMP quite some time. He worked on a variety of files, which is typical for the RCMP. They move from, you know, from task to task throughout their career. What I think is important for me, Rick, is there's no indication that he was working for the Chinese while he was working for the RCMP. This seems to be a sort of a post-RCMP activity on his behalf. Again, we'll find out more as the court case unfolds, but um it's, it's a real, I think, a... A real big thing for the Chinese, they can identify somebody who had that kind of access because they'll learn more about how the RCMP does its own business. So they they didn't choose him randomly, I'm pretty sure. But again, We have to wait and see for more information to come out as the the court case uh, proceeds.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Risk and uh, Threat and Risk Consulting. You can get info on uh, what he does online at borealisthreatandrisk.com, also a former Canadian intelligence analyst and an author, by the way, as well. What is the motivation in this case? Is it simply money?
4: Could be. It's hard to tell. So we know that, and I've talked to uh, Canadians here, Rick, you know, like Uyghurs and Tibetans, who are threatened. So you, know, you have family back home. If you continue to criticize the Chinese government, your family may be in difficulty. It's really hard to say. You may recall a couple of years ago, Rick, there was a guy on the East Coast in Nova Scotia, and he was caught spying for the Russians. I think it was purely financial. So it's really hard to tell what the motivation is. Again, I think we'll find out more as a court case unfolds, but for some people, it's as simple as, you know, it's cash. And, uh, you know, foreign intelligence agencies can pay a lot of cash to people to do this. Whether he had some kind of ideological or maybe was you know, some kind of revenge to the RCMP, I have no idea. But so given that motivations are almost as individual as individuals are, it really is a wait and see point, I I think, in, in terms of the investigation.
0: On the other side of the coin, from the Chinese perspective, what made this individual so valuable to them?
4: I think, as I said, you know, someone who worked for the RCMP or in my case that worked for CSIS, If you get a hold of someone like that, you may have your own intentions. You know, we want you to do this and do that. But at the same time, you may be able to convince that person to sort of, you know, pony up and say, well, here's how the RCMP does X, Y, or Z. Chinese know that the the RCMP has them on their radar. So if they can learn from a former RCMP how they monitor people, what kind of investigations they carry out, and how they carry them out, that's a bonus for them because they can say, okay, we've now learned this. We know that this is what Canada can do against us. Maybe we'll change our procedures and the way we operate so that we're less visible to them. So this is why I say I, I'd be very surprised if this individual was chosen at random. But they would have seen here's a guy with some previous great access. He knows how the you know how the bread is made, and we're going to learn from that.
0: In our forty-five uh, last forty-five seconds together, do you expect China to do anything different now that someone has been arrested?
4: I doubt it. Um, this is the cost of playing the game. They've been doing it for decades. You know, so one gets arrested. There's probably gazillions more out there that they can either already have taken advantage of or are looking to take advantage of. So, no, China won't stop doing what it's doing, right, unfortunately. uh, It's time for the government to act and and start protecting Canadians.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right on that last point. Phil, thank you for your time today. Thanks for waking up with us.
4: My pleasure, Rick. Take care, right?
0: You too. Phil Gursky, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, online BorealisThreatAndRisk.com, a former Canadian intelligence analyst at CSIS and obviously knows his stuff.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: I well, if it was a love shack. I mean, it, it might have been. But according to conservative leader Pierre poliev it certainly was a tiny little shack, Mr. Poliev now apologizing to a woman in Niagara Falls after he called her home a, quote, tiny little shack while complaining about the high cost of house prices, saying that housing under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has doubled, the cost of housing has doubled during the reign of this liberal government. And that is entirely, that is 100% true. The cost of housing has increased while Mr. Trudeau has been in office. However, what is also true is that the price of homes in Hamilton, for example, have doubled every 10 years or thereabouts since the 1950s. And I'm not sure Justin Trudeau is to blame for that as well, is he? Rob Golfie is a sales representative with REMAX, Scartman Realty, the Golfie team, and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Rob, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. I understand what Pierre Pauliev was trying to do. He's trying to highlight the high cost of homes in the country. But what do you make of the tiny little shack comment?
5: Um, yeah, I heard that. I, I Honestly, I don't think he intentionally tried to hurt anybody. I think it was just, uh, just kind of a phrase that uh, he used during his... Uh, speech it just came out uh differently just mm-hmm. like anybody else would say um I'm not trying to uh you know cover protect him by saying it but I, I don't think there was anything meant out of it and it just just came out the wrong way yeah when he was speaking and and you know he's he's in the limelight right so he's Everybody's going to scrutinize every word that he says. So, he's, you know, and obviously he shouldn't have said that, but I, I don't think it was intentional.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think there was any ill intent as well. He was trying, just trying to make an example of, you know, here's this, Here's a, let's call it a spade a spade. It is a tiny home in comparison to many others. One of those homes built during the Second World War that were put up fast and very much needed at that time. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy that the woman took exception and, and also happy that Mr. Polyev has apologized. But let's talk about house prices over the last several decades, because they have, and I'm assuming uh, will continue to double every 10 years or so.
5: Absolutely. And, um, and you know what, there's always price adjustments throughout the course of the years, but, but it shows that house prices have doubled uh, since 1960. Like it just, it just kept going double, double, double. And, and, and I truly believe, you know, based from 2020 the average sale price in the Hamilton Burlington area was 694,000 my prediction in 2030 and it's hard to believe but the average sale price is going to be 1,388,000 that's that's my prediction i've got it written down i got it on my board and but i think it's going to be even greater than that the average sale price again, i think in 2030 is going to be about 1.7 million just because uh, the fact we have a shortage of homes, we have a high immigration uh, coming in, and the demand is going to be greater than what we can supply. So, um, yeah, I, I truly feel that uh, house prices are going to be uh, greater than than anybody would imagine. And think about this: in 2010, the average sale price in 2000, um, uh, in 2010, the average sale price was 320. Let's say 325 thousand. <laughs> Nobody would ever think that in 2020 it would be almost uh 700,000. So, you know, uh and then and then if you go back back into in 2000 in Hamilton Burlington, the average sale price was 165,000. Can you believe that? <laughs> wow. in the, in 2000. So That seems so, like a steal now. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, but I do feel that uh um if you could, if you could get uh, an investment property or or uh, or or Buy a house for yourself personally. Get in there fast. Doesn't matter what the market is. Uh, yesterday is too late, and today is is not fast enough.
0: When it comes to we we've talked about this on the Golfy Real Estate Show. We can you can hear Saturdays at nine a.m. Uh, about co ownership. And because the price of housing is so off the charts for many, especially first time homebuyers, are we still seeing many co ownership? uh, packages bef- before you and before other realtors in the city?
5: Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, my, my, uh, my son's, uh, friend, friends, uh, they bought a house together. They lived in it for about three years and, uh, they sold it and each, uh, party, each friend went their separate ways and bought their own single family home. Hmm. So, and it's, it's a way to get started, you know, like, uh, I mean, you know, hopefully everything, you know, everybody gets along and everybody, you know, has their rules and and everything else when they, before they buy. And, you know, one person is going to get the uh, master bedroom with the en suite. The other one may not, but if you guys can live with that, that's fine. But I think that is the way to go to get started. And then, uh, you know, it's step-by-step you know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, we all want everything now, but if you're young, five years of your life, you know, sharing a house with a friend, goes by like a like a blank so i i, I highly recommend that for uh, a lot of people that want to get together and, and purchase a house so they can build some equity fast
0: in our final minute we'll looking into your crystal ball what do you see for the rest of this year the second half of
5: 2023 i i i see that you know the you know the balance of the summer is going to be pretty flat i i do see a tiny spike coming in the fall and uh next year i do see another spike i i know economically uh companies are going to feel the pinch just because of of people not spending as much money out there because mortgage uh interest rates have gone up on people's renewals but i still you know the the housing market is still going to be strong we we got a shortage we got a shortage of rental properties we got a shortage of housing and um and it's going to continue like that for a long time rob
0: always appreciate your time thanks for joining us this morning
5: Thank you. Have a great day. Rob Golfie, sales
0: representative, REMAX, Scartman Realty, the Golfie team. You can check them out online, robgolfie.com. Listen to the Golfie Real Estate Show, Saturdays at 9, right here on 900CHML. Rob was reflecting on house prices from years gone by. It's hard to believe that in 2010, the average price of a house in Hamilton, $325,000. That wasn't that long ago, considering it's nearly a million now in 2165 grand. In 1990 it was actually 167. Went down because of the recession in the 90s. In 1980 the average price of a home in Hamilton was $59,000. In 1970 25 grand. In 1960 12,000. And in 1955 the first set of data figures. You can get a house in Hamilton, 1955, for $10,162. That is
1: absolutely amazing. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Back to this discussion, this image refresh or revamp for federal conservative party leader Pierre Poilievre. Gone are his trademark glasses and tie in favor of a well a more casual appearance. T-shirt and sport jackets, some comfy shoes. Is it going to make a difference at all for people who are paying attention or not to what Mr. Polyev is trying to sell to Canadians? Laura Peck is the vice president of the Transformational Leadership Consultants and fellow in Carlton Maskers of Political Management and Strategic Communications in the MBA program at Cape Breton University. Laura, good morning. Thanks for joining us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Hamilton. Why do politicians do this?
6: It's all about refreshing the brand. Uh, Does your brand uh, authentically and genuinely tell the story? Uh, The visual is part of the branding. And so most leaders do go through a refresh. They have a look at um, trying to, what's out there? What do they need to do? Uh, Can this person be on the world stage? Is this a person of strength? Can we picture them on the world stage. And so this is not unusual for leaders to do.
0: So Mr. Polyev has dumped the suit uh, in in favor of a more casual look. Is he trying to present himself as more of a common man or a common individual?
6: Yeah, he did this uh, very quickly and it all happened in Halifax a couple of months ago. And so but this is not unusual. Um, Most most politicians, most leaders will try to refresh that brand. They'll look at everything from the visual and to the, to the social media because the next election will be won by looking at that image as well as policy definitely counts, but there's no question. A lot of people are looking at uh, politicians on their devices, on their phones. Uh, on the social media. And so it really does count.
0: He has, uh, whenever you think of the, you know, the prototypical or the stereotypical male politician, it's someone in a suit and probably an older gentleman. He's certainly not in the old category, but uh, we've pictured him. We've seen him for years in a suit and tie and has been painted as a career politician, which let's face it, he is. Does this try to get away from that?
6: Well, it it certainly was a more casual Uh, brand that he's putting out there Uh, you know you you can see this this person has to be versatile also Uh, if you are out meeting and greeting people in the summertime you want to uh, project that you've got the kind of brand uh, if I wanted to or you wanted to do you want to have a beer with this person do you want to have a conversation with this person on a one-on-one would you be comfortable with this person And so that seems to be the brand that they are looking to uh, position their leader in.
0: We're speaking with Laura Peck, Vice President, Transformational Leadership Consultants, about the image tweak of uh, Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev. Are there any cons to doing this sort of thing?
6: Well, there's no guarantees uh, that this is going to actually work. They're 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 I I get it though when they want to refresh their brand especially when when the they're doing the summer thing all the politicians are out there uh, going to uh, much more casual events but they are attracting big crowds that that is amazing but they they all have to be more accessible to the public uh, they want to soften that image and let's face it it's if you are in a big crowd you you don't want to be uh looking like you're in the house of commons you want to look like you're among the people
0: last one for you does the prime minister or even ndp leader jagmeet singh change their appearances at all do they do they need a bit of a tweak
6: one wonders about that uh for sure uh in the in these in the case of mr singh Um, You know, he's got a a very memorable uh, presence, that's for sure. And everybody is very, very aware of the prime minister. We've known him since before he was born. So he doesn't have to introduce himself to uh, people all the time. Mr. Polyev does. Uh, A lot of people don't even know who he is. And so this is the way for him to get across the chasm, introduce himself to people.
0: It's uh, it's a very interesting development. We'll see if it ultimately translates into a few more votes for Mr. Pauly. E. Flora, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That's Laura Peck, the Vice President of Transformational Leadership Consultants and Fellow in Carleton Masters of Political Management and Strategic Communications in the MBA program at Cape Breton University.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Fifteen Inuit elders who endured years of psychological abuse and isolation in tuberculosis sanatoriums are going to visit the site of a former sanatorium here in Hamilton today and over the next couple of days. This is being called a first of its kind in Canada. It's being organized by the Nunavut Tugavik Incorporated and Sea Change Initiative at the request of the elders. And it's all part of the Tuberculosis Sanatorium Survivor Healing and Closure Initiative, something I had no idea even existed. But I'm glad we stumbled upon this uh, availability and this this story because this is something that we need to talk about here on the show. Rachel Kittle Monroe is the founder and CEO of Sea Change and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rachel, good morning. How are you?
7: Hey, good morning, Rick. I'm well.
0: How are you? I'm I'm really good. Tell us about the history of these sanatoriums and what these elders are hoping to achieve.
7: Yeah, these sanatoriums have existed uh, for since the early 1900s. And in the 1950s, um, there was a big outbreak of tuberculosis in Nunavut. And a lot of uh, young people and uh, people were checked. And then they were brought down to these sanatoriums, including Hamilton. Actually, interestingly, Hamilton was had the largest Inuit population outside the Arctic uh, year-round at a certain point. There were 1,200 Inuit that came to Hamilton, staying in the sanatorium. It was a very traumatic time for them because the when the, there was a large ship that was sent up by the Canadian government called the C.D. Howe, and people didn't know why they were put on the ship. They couldn't speak English. They didn't understand what was happening to them. And then they came down to the south and stayed for often many years in the sanatorium, never knowing what was going on. A lot of them were very young children. We have elders with us who were taken down when they were three years old. They were taken down on their own and ended up staying there for two years, um, and in very difficult conditions. We know about the residential schools here in Canada. was happening in the TB sanatorium, very similar to that.
0: So those Inuit who tested positive for TB were taking to these sanatoriums, including one here in Hamilton. Obviously, you know, ripped away from their families and spending, as you just mentioned, you know, a, a few years in these institutions. Were they trying to cure these people, or just keep them away from others?
7: No, they were trying to cure them. Uh, there was a very, uh, you know, the way that they were treating TB at the time was very different to how it's treated today. We didn't have the same medications to treat it. Um, but it was the circumstances of the treatment I think that, that would really caused so much uh, psychological damage and trauma uh the children were very mistreated uh they were not with anybody else they didn't speak english um there are stories of elders not being able to allowed to get off their bed uh for for a year um there were Stories of others who were separated from their siblings and that they suffered uh, physical abuse as well at the hands of people in the sanatorium.
0: Rachel Kittle-Monroe is the founder and CEO of Sea Change Initiative, one of the organizations that is uh, bringing some Inuit elders to Hamilton today to um, go see the former sanatorium in the city in which many of them uh, suffered psychological abuse and and were isolated for years. And there's going to be a special event tomorrow at the Art Gallery of Hamilton. Tell us about that.
7: Yes, tomorrow afternoon we're going to be uh, having a reception with the mayor of Hamilton. Uh, and elders will be talking about their experiences and it will be a chance for people in Hamilton to meet with these Inuit elders who are here, as well as youth that we brought because there's also this intergenerational trauma. So there are Inuit youth coming as well to learn about their own history and to look at how they can support the elimination of tuberculosis in Canada because today tuberculosis is still a very important issue in in Nunavut. So that reception is starting at five o'clock. The doors open at the gallery Um, People will be in the reception, and then after that we're showing a film called The Necessities of Life, which is a fictionalized account of what happened in the sanatorium in the 1950s.
0: Uh, Admission to the film screening uh, and reception is by donation, and all those donations are going to be used to help support Inuit TB sanatorium survivors. I'm expecting a very emotional visit to the sanatorium today and and, and this week.
7: There will be. We're leaving this morning at 8 to the sanatorium, and the elders already talking amongst themselves and exchanging stories. One beautiful story, Rick, actually, was that there were two elders on the trip who didn't know that the other one was going to be on, and they discovered that they were both at Hamilton together at the same time, and they remember each other from that time, and they haven't seen each other since then. Uh, So it's been already a very emotional journey for them.
0: And how long ago would they have been in the sanatorium, and and when did it close, do you know?
7: It closed um, probably around the 80s, something like that. It became the Shidoki Hospital that. It was up on the on the hill um, mountain. Um, and these uh, most of these elders were there in between 1959 and 97. Uh, those were the years
0: they were there. Wow. It is going to be an emotional visit, I am sure, and uh, hopefully we can uh, raise some funds for uh, Inuit TB Sanatorium survivors. Rachel, really appreciate your time Absolutely.
7: this morning. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much.
0: That's Rachel Kittle-Monroe, founder and CEO of the Sea Change Initiative, one of the group's that has brought 15 Inuit elders to the community today to visit the site of the former sanatorium in Hamilton, in which they spent years being treated for tuberculosis, ripped away from their families, as we saw with residential school. Same kind of story, although a very different circumstance involved there. But again, victimizing indigenous peoples in this community. If, if you can attend tomorrow's screening of the Necessities of Life uh, at the Hamilton Art Gallery, uh, you can do so tomorrow. It begins The reception begins at 5, 5.30, and uh, the screening will start at 7. That should be a very... Very emotional time, especially for the elders who are taking that in.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.